Please stand for the reading of God's word for those that can stand. Thank you. This can be found on page 238 in the Pew Bible. David anointed king. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Excuse me. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going through here. Okay. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. All right, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open as we pray this morning. God, we are thankful to be here in this place, thankful to be among friends and those whom we consider brothers and sisters, because we know that we have been called here by your name and according to your purpose. God, give us eyes to see this morning. Help us to see as you see. And help us to recognize your glory and your grace as we see it revealed to us in 1 Samuel. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. One of the things I think that we all experience in life, or that we all recognize at some point in life, is that we have very different perspectives from other people on almost everything. We look at things differently because our points of view and our experiences and our priorities in life are different. And so the place where we're standing, so to speak, shapes 
to some degree, the perspective that we have on the things that we experience and deal with in life. The view that you have of a mountain is different when you're standing at the top and looking down than when you're standing at the bottom and you're looking at the long and winding path ahead of you. Our perspectives affect the way that we go through life. Someone who has themselves been injured by riding a bike without a helmet is probably going to be more likely to wear a, more likely to wear a helmet when they're riding their bike in the future. Our experiences affect our perspectives and our perspectives affect our behaviors. I think that parents have a unique understanding of this. Parents have a unique understanding of the point that I'm trying to make. Now, I'm not a parent, but I do remember subjecting my parents to the same type of thing that all kids subject their parents to based simply on what they want to watch on TV. Maybe you look back at your childhood and you remember a particular show or movie that you really, really loved, that was really important to you as a child. For my brothers and me, it was a show called Power Rangers. Now, if you're unfamiliar, I'll explain. The basic premise of this show was that some teenagers in California had found some goo from outer space, and that goo had somehow transformed them into ninjas that fly around and fight aliens. And what made this show especially unique was that all of the action scenes in the show were actually about 10 years older than everything else because they had been filmed for an entirely different show in Japan. And a production studio in the United States bought those scenes and then filmed some new scenes to sort of stitch together a show. The plots of this show were terrible. The acting in this show was atrocious. The production values were basically non-existent. And six-year-old Travis could not get enough of it. I loved it. I had the toys that went with the show. I had like pajamas with the characters on them. And as an adult, a few years ago, I went back and tried watching some of this show just for nostalgia's sake, to just remember what it was like to be six years old. And let me tell you, it was basically unwatchable. And I, could not ex I couldn't escape the realization that six-year-old Travis was not the sharpest knife in the drawer if this was the sort of thing that he was into. And that's simply because our experiences, our experiences in life shape our perspectives. An extra 25 years of living affected the way that I looked at the things that I loved as a six-year-old. Experiences affect the way that we see things in life. It's a tremendously important pillar. That point is a tremendously important pillar of life in a postmodern society. Our culture holds that every perspective is equally valid and unimpeachable because it has been shaped by unique experience and background. And that is certainly true when it comes to many things in life, including the TV shows that we loved as kids. My point of view as a six-year-old was certainly valid when it came to reviewing shows that were made for six-year-olds. But looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16 causes us, I think, to take a step back and begin asking different questions than what we might have asked before. It causes us, to, I think, to rethink this question of perspective in a way that we may not have considered it before. At this point in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel has her very first king, a man named Saul. He is the result of the people's demand to have a king someone in whom they could find stability and strength and leadership that they did not think that they had before. Saul is the answer to all of the problems that they can see. 
But as we open chapter 16, Saul has already been rejected by God as the king of his people. In the passage that Pastor Bruce walked us through last week, we saw the ways in which Saul has failed to obey God's command. Though he has certainly succeeded in other ways, he has failed at some critical moments. He had certainly done what the people wanted him to do, what they wanted their king to do. He had led them into battle, and he had won, and he was the picture of strength and stability that they were looking for. But at two critical junctures, the flaws in Saul's character have begun to reveal themselves. First, he impatiently offered a sacrifice that was not his responsibility to offer. That was the responsibility of Samuel, the prophet that God had appointed to do that work. But Saul impatiently offers that sacrifice by taking matters into his, his own hands. And afterwards, Samuel, the prophet, tells him, your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man who is after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And then, in the passage that we looked at last week, Saul failed to follow all of God's instruction to devote the Amalekites entirely to destruction choosing instead to bring back home with him some of the best of the plunder that they recovered in that battle. And afterward, Samuel tells him, the Lord has rejected him from being king over Israel. Saul's failures, I think, may seem minor to us, or even inconsequential. He didn't brazenly worship idols as later kings would. He didn't commit adultery and deception and murder as his successor later would. He didn't even fail to prioritize worshiping God, but he has chosen to do so in his own way and to decide for himself what is right and good, to ignore the explicit commands of the Lord, worshiping in the way that was most expedient or popular, regardless of whether it is in opposition to what God has instructed. Saul's failures are inward failures, flaws in his character, and they reveal the state of his heart, which was not immediately obvious to those who met him. When he was identified as Israel's first king, he was everything that they wanted. The description that we have of Saul from way back in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel describes only his physical stature, which was impressive to say the least. It says that the people ran to see him and he stood among the people, taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? They couldn't see his heart or his character. They could only see his height. And it was exactly what they wanted. God had given them the king that they asked for. The king who exhibited strength and might. Who would be their defender and their leader in battle. But the more that we have gotten to know him in the book of 1 Samuel, since his appointment to the office of king, we have gotten to see his character. And at this point in 1 Samuel, attentive readers have begun to pick up on an important theme that has begun revealing itself in this book. The Hebrew word for see, to see, has popped up a lot in this book. Just like it did in chapter 10, when in the passage that we just read, in which Saul's height is described to us. Samuel asks if the people can see him. And even though it's easy, I think, to pass right over that, it is kind of an odd question for him to ask. 
considering that we've just been told that he's a foot taller than everyone else in the entire country. So of course they could see him. Or at least they could see what was obvious to them. They were unable to see everything about Saul. Over and over and over again in this book, seeing has come up to describe prophets, to describe God seeing his people, or to describe beholding something obvious. And now, readers of the book of 1 Samuel are beginning to understand what it means to see in a whole new way. That emphasis becomes clearer, I think, when we compare 1 Samuel with other books in the Bible. 1 Chronicles, for example, is a book written to cover roughly the same period in Israelite history, and it's about the same length as 1 Samuel. 1 Chronicles uses the word to see 23 times. 1 Samuel uses it 81 times. The two books record the same history, and they're about the same length, but we can get a sense for the particular emphasis that 1 Samuel is making by simply recognizing the repetition of this word. Seeing and seeing the right way is an important part of what this book is trying to help its readers do. What the people could not see in Saul, the events recorded in this book have helped them to see more clearly. Saul is not a fit king for the people of God. Though he is certainly outwardly qualified, he is inwardly flawed. And those inward issues, the problems in his heart, have disqualified him from continuing as Israel's king. Samuel is grieved over this, according to the very first verse in the passage we're looking at this morning, chapter 16. In fact, it's the second time in two verses, the last chapter, the last verse of chapter 15, also tells us that he is grieving over this situation. He is mourning the failures of this king, because what Samuel had warned the people about is coming true. He warned them way back in chapter 8 about all of the ways in which Israel's human kings would fail to lead them and lead them well. And it's taken only a few years for that warning to become a reality. Saul's failures foreshadow the ways in which Israel's kings would similarly fail. Like Saul, most of them would go on to arrogantly pursue their own way their, and their own definition of what is right and good and ultimately to neglect the instruction of God choosing instead the instruction that they receive from their own heart, from the idols that they craft with their own hands. Samuel is sad for these kings and also for the people whom they rule because their leader had failed them, and they would eventually follow in that path of sin and rebellion. And it's in the midst of that grieving that God comes to Samuel and asks, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him for being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God will answer the failure of Israel's king to remain faithful by providing for himself a king who will. Now that's not to say that the king that God is about to provide will be perfect or will never falter. In fact, he will fail spectacularly. But in the same way that Saul's reign 
foreshadowed the ongoing failures of the vast majority of Israel's kings and the judgment that would come as a result, the king that God promises to provide for himself foreshadows a once and future king whose reign will never falter and never fail. God's answers to Saul's failure is to provide a solution himself. And hidden in this verse is a clue as to how he will do so. He says, I have provided for myself a king from among Jesse's sons. But the word provided that we see in this passage is the exact same Hebrew word that we have begun to notice throughout the book. It's the same word translated see in the rest of this passage we're looking at this morning. God will provide himself with the right king by looking beyond the exterior. He will provide himself with the right king by looking at something else entirely. He has seen for himself a king from among Jesse's sons. And Samuel is being sent to give him that message. No more grieving. It's time to saddle up and go because God is doing something here. God is answering Saul's failures by providing an answer. But Samuel is, in this situation, justifiably, I think, a little anxious about the mission that he's being sent on. He's had multiple run-ins with Saul, who has settled into his office as the commander of all of Israel's armies quite comfortably. Saul is desperate, we've already seen in this book, desperate to keep his post, having begged Samuel to allow him to remain. And he will go on to display some murderous tendencies later in this book that have begun to peek out already at this point. And in order for Samuel to reach Jesse's house, he has to travel through Saul's hometown. It's only about an 11-mile journey in total, nothing too crazy. But Samuel is something of a celebrity in Israel, a well-known figure in the whole country. And it's not an easy task for him to slip through Saul's hometown unnoticed. And people, especially Saul, will wonder just what he's up to. And so Saul... Uh, So Samuel asks, if Saul hears about this, he will kill me. It's a justifiable concern. It's not unlike the concern that many Christian families feel when they've been called by God to live and work in missionaries, as missionaries in countries that are openly hostile to Christianity. For Christians who serve in countries that abuse or imprison, or even worse, those who profess Christianity there is a justifiable concern for safety. We have friends who hear the call of God to go, and they ask, how can I go? If I go there and if I'm found out, I will be imprisoned or worse. Yet God calls them to go. And it's not because of a lack of concern for their safety, but because of the overwhelming love that he has for those living in the darkness. So just as in many of those situations, God provides a scenario that would not have aroused any suspicion. Samuel is to go to Bethlehem to perform a sacrificial ritual. It's well within the scope of his responsibilities as a prophet serving in Israel. And just like those who go to closed countries with the gospel, serving as English teachers or humanitarian workers or business owners, they've been called to go and share the gospel. But circumstances necessitate that they arrive with a different set of official reasons for living and working in these places that would prohibit them from carrying out the kingdom work they've been called for. God provides a way for Samuel to safely go. 
but that does not mean that he will be well received. When he arrives in Bethlehem in verse 4, the people come out of town to meet him, and they are trembling, and they ask, do you come peaceably? Samuel and Saul are two of the most public figures in the whole country, and the tension between them has not been discreet. Sparks have flown between them at their last few meetings, both of which were very public affairs, and the last place that the people of this sleepy little town of Bethlehem want to be is in the middle of this brewing fight. So Samuel's arrival is met with some trepidation by the people in this town, but Samuel will offer a sacrifice in Bethlehem, and the people see nothing out of the ordinary about his visit. Even when Samuel specifically seeks out Jesse and his sons to consecrate and invite them to that sacrifice. Because Samuel knows something they do not know yet. Even though he sees more than they can at this point, though, he is confused about the mission that he has been sent to carry out. He knows that one of Jesse's sons will be Israel's next king, the one who will replace Saul, whom God has provided for himself. So when Eliab, the oldest of the sons, walks in, Samuel thinks, well, job done. That was easy. Piece of cake. Because Eliab is the oldest and therefore in the most prestigious position among all of Jesse's sons. And so he is presumed to be the one whom God has sent Samuel to find. And not only that, he is battle ready. In the next chapter, chapter 17, we'll see that Eliab had followed after Saul along with his other two oldest brothers into battle against the Philistines. He is the obvious choice. He is a leader. He has the birthright. He has strength and a military background. And so it seems straightforward. He is the obvious candidate. It's just like back in seventh grade. Everybody remembers being in seventh grade and going out to recess to play kickball, and people line up to pick teams. And there's one kid who's taller than everyone else who could kick the ball over the school who was in seventh grade for like the third or fourth time, he got picked first every time because he was the obvious choice. So Samuel sees this oldest son and thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But Samuel is looking at things the way that people looked at Saul. He is not seeing things the way that God sees. And so God speaks to him and says in verse 7, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has rejected Eliab. He will not be the next king, even though all signs point to his success in that role. However, all signs had pointed to Saul's success also. Samuel is learning an important lesson here. It is not the outward appearance that is most essential. Instead, it is what is in the heart, what Samuel and the rest of the people cannot see. In this verse, verse 7, we receive one of the central messages of the book of Samuel as a whole. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God considers the things that Samuel and the rest of the nation could not perceive, this verse, according to one commentator, is the key to understanding the whole of First and Second Samuel. Perhaps more than that, it is the, really the key to understanding life and the universe and everything else. Samuel is seeing this oldest son the same way 
that people saw the last person fitting this description in the book of 1 Samuel from a human point of view. And suddenly, readers of this book begin to understand that even though all of us have unique perspectives and equally valid uh, experiences that shape those perspectives and, and important priorities in our lives that are, that are equally valid, none of us sees as God sees. None of us could know how either of these men would perform as king until they have held the office and we have a record to examine. Because none of us can see beyond the surface. None of us can look past Saul's stature or his son's impressive frame. Even Samuel is taken in by his impressive presence. But the one that God has in mind will not look like what the people are seeking. He will not look like the hero that they have in mind. Just as in Isaiah 53, when God promises to his people a Savior, as they live in captivity in Babylon, he promises them a Savior, one who would deliver them from all oppression and slavery. But he will not look like a hero, or at least not like the hero they expect. In fact, God says he has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The one whom God will call to be Savior of all will not look like a Savior, at least from our perspective. It's a point that God seems to really want to underscore in this passage. Seven times Jesse parades his sons before Samuel, each time thinking perhaps this is the one that Samuel is here to look for. It's a bizarre runway show, Israel's next top monarch, and each time God tells Samuel, not this one. Seven times is a lot of repetition. God could have saved everyone a lot of time by simply giving Samuel the name of the one that he had been sent to find. But instead, he has to go through this process, sizing up each of Jesse's sons, each of whom are a little bit less impressive than the one that came before, in order to reject them all, because none of them measure up. God is making a point even though they think they know what he is looking for in a king, they do not understand. The oldest son is brought forth first because he is presumed to be the most worthy to hold such an office. Jesse is putting his best foot forward. Over the years as a youth pastor, I've written countless recommendation letters for college and scholarship applications. And one of the things that I have learned is that it's important to keep in mind what the admissions office or scholarship boards are looking for in the applicants. And so I know it's best to use the space that I have to highlight a student's work ethic, their strengths, and the ways that they have demonstrated their character. It's ultimately unhelpful for me to tell stories about how much baby food they ate on a dare at youth group one night, as some of our students have. That won't help the students whom I'm writing letters for. Jesse, in this scenario, is putting his best foot forward, highlighting the strengths of his family and the sons whom he thinks have a best shot at being received well by this prophet. So he brings out his seven sons in the order that he thinks they will be most likely to be chosen for the work that God is preparing for them to do. And seven times he rejects those candidates. So at this point, Samuel is a little confused. He knows he has the right house because God has sent him specifically to Bethlehem and to Jesse. He knows that it will be one of Jesse's sons who will be Israel's next king. 
And he knows that despite his own assumptions, it will not be any of the seven sons whom he has now met. And so he asks in verse 11, is this everybody? Because either someone is missing or God got the address wrong. But Jesse replies, there is one more, the youngest, the one remaining son who isn't even in the house. He was such an unlikely candidate that he's out in the pasture shepherding the sheep. Even though Samuel had, call, had come to call one of Jesse's sons to rule, Jesse had only assembled seven of his eight sons because the youngest son was such an unlikely choice. He hadn't even bothered to call him in from the fields. And the reason for that choice is hidden in this passage, in the word youngest, which is the exact same word translated elsewhere in 1 Samuel as smallest. He's the youngest and the smallest. He's not only the last born, he is the puniest of all of Jesse's sons. While his older brothers would have been the first chosen for kickball, he would have been the last chosen every time. And in this moment, Samuel begins to understand, it seems like he begins to understand what is about to happen, because with some urgency in his voice, he tells Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he gets here. And as soon as, as, soon as this last-born son walks in the door, God proclaims to Samuel, arise and anoint him for this is he. Everyone in the house is already standing because of the instruction that Samuel gave. We won't sit down until he gets here. So they're obeying that instruction, presumably. Yet, when this last son does arrive, God's command to Samuel is, arise. Prepare for what I am about to do. This moment will be a critical moment in the history of my people. This is the king whom God has provided for himself, whom he has seen for himself. And in the midst of his brothers, David, this last-born son in Jesse's house, in a sleepy little town called Bethlehem, is anointed the second king of Israel. I can't help thinking that this was probably an interesting day for David. There he was, minding his own business with his family. His dad tells them that they're going to have an important guest and that he will be responsible for keeping track of the animals while all of his older brothers are busy with the meeting going on in the house. So David obediently goes to look after the sheep. And while he's out there, someone comes running out, huffing and puffing, to tell him that he's got to hustle back to the house as fast as he can because he has been summoned by the prophet of God who is meeting with his father and brothers. So he rushes back home. He walks in the door, and he sees everyone awkwardly standing in the living room and staring at him. And Samuel looks at him and says, this is the one that God has chosen. I can't help thinking David's probably a little confused by what he's walked in on. But the future of God's people does not depend on David's understanding or on Jesse's assumptions or on Samuel's expectations, because none of them can see what is really going on. It depends instead on the God who sees what we cannot, and who acts according to his will. God has chosen the least obvious of Jesse's sons, the youngest and the smallest, to make a point about Israel and about himself. It's a point that he makes throughout Scripture, and one which is still true today. God will provide, and often he will do so in ways that prove his strength, not the strength of his people, not our strength.
the first time in the book of 1 Samuel that David's name is mentioned is not when Samuel is called to find him. Nor is it when his father tells Samuel about him. Nor is it when he walks in the room. Nor is it even when God says, this is the one. It is in verse 13, which tells us that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David wasn't called because he was the strongest, as this passage has made very clear. He wasn't called because of his military training, since apparently he has none. He wasn't called because of the privilege of being firstborn in his family, a distinguishing feature at this point in history. He was called because, according to 1 Corinthians, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that it would be God's glory on display, not David's. He was not looking at what people could see, the outward strength and stature, the qualifications for king that people had sought. He was instead putting his own glory and might on display calling the one who will point people toward their true king. David was called because he was a man after God's own heart. That phrase, I think, is often misused or misunderstood. I think most often we use that phrase uh, to describe someone who mimics the attributes of someone else. Like when I hear, for example, that someone likes eating ice cream for dinner, I say to myself, ah, a man after my own heart. That's how we typically understand this expression to function. However, that causes some confusion when we see it in Scripture. God says through Samuel that he will seek a man after his own heart. That's what he said back in chapter 13. And that man turns out to be David. And everything is going fine for a while. David does mimic the attributes of the God who has called him. But after a while, he reveals flaws much, much more terrible than anything that we saw in Saul, and he becomes a monster. And so God's description of David as a man after his own heart causes us some confusion. Because we typically misunderstand the use of that phrase, David is not perfect. He is far from it. He is not holy, though he has been called to a holy office. He is a man after God's own heart because he has been chosen according to God's merciful heart. Out of God's heart, he has chosen David. In spite of all of his flaws, he is the instrument that God has chosen to hold this office, the one appointed by God for this work. That idea will be hammered home in the next chapter, perhaps the most, chapter, most famous chapter in the book of 1 Samuel, when this untrained shepherd, the youngest born in the house of Jesse, will face a terrifying threat on the battlefield. David will confront the enemy of God's people, a man named Goliath, and he will do so without any of the things that we typically associate with battle. He was given armor, but it was too big. He was given a sword, it was too heavy. Yet he will prevail, and it will not be the result of his strength. It will be because, as David himself says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the moment he does, the moment David is proven right, 
the Israelites and the Philistines alike will be able to see a little more clearly for the first time. And even though they thought they could before, they will begin to see things, they will begin to see things as God sees them and recognize that victory does not rest on the shoulders of the strong, but on the mercy of the Lord of hosts. And even though it's hard to realize that our point of view is not God's point of view, it is for our good. Because we are tempted every day, we are tempted to keep putting our trust in the outward signs of strength that we can see most obviously, and to look to those things for comfort. And even though it can be painful to have the rug yanked out from under us in moments like these, it is an experience that allows us to truly see for perhaps the first time. The Apostle Paul had experience like this. After suffering for an extended period with something that he describes as a thorn in the flesh, an ongoing prayer for God to remove it, God responds by telling him, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Seeing as God sees involves the painful realization that we have not been seeing clearly at all. Because true strength does not lie in height or military training or birth order, nor does it lie in wealth or the number of degrees we might attain or in the strength of our resume. It lies in being people after God's own heart, called by his name and according to his purpose. One of the things that this passage reminds me of that is a great comfort to me as I consider its implications for us and for Westgate during this unique season is the desire of the succession planning team to identify not simply the candidate with the strongest resume, although certainly they have done an impressive, impressive amount of work pouring over lots of resumes. But instead, their desire is to identify the man whom God has called to take up this post, the man after God's own heart who has been called according to his mercy and his providential purpose here at Westgate. And for that reason, the whole process has been the subject of lots and lots of prayer, not only within the succession planning team, but among this church as a whole, as we ask for God's wisdom and guidance. Our experiences have certainly shaped our perspectives, and our perspectives shape our behaviors. And while the uncertainty of what lies ahead for us here at Westgate might cause some anxiety, our experience with the God who sees, who truly sees what we cannot has shaped our perspective. So in this situations and all situations we face in life, we can move forward with hope and trust that God will provide, even if not in the way that we might expect. And we can rest in the fact that his love for us has already been proven in his willingness to take upon himself the wages of our sin. He has already gone to the cross in our place and already begun to make things new. So our hope and our future is not built on something we're wishing for, but on something already done. The hero we needed wasn't the one we were looking for. But now that we've seen him, it changes the way that we see everything else. Let's pray. God, we ask that um, we would uh, truly recognize the way in which uh, you look straight through us 
and see to the heart of who we really are. And that having seen who we really are and the real mess that we do hard work to cover up every day, that you have seen it anyway, and yet you have called us your sons and daughters because of your mercy. God, allow us to worship you in spirit and truth, having seen that perhaps for the first time this morning or been moved by it in a powerful way this morning. God, we're thankful for your word and the way in which you speak to us through it. We lift these prayers up to you in the name of your Son.